Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hello, Jess. I am Craig Campbell. I make games, too. And we are here with uh, with a guest, Evan. Hello. Welcome back. Hi there. It's great to be back. My name is Evan Torner, and I also I research and uh, and write games as well. Thank you for coming back. Craig, Craig is actually, he said games too. It's the sequel to games. Yeah. <laughs> games too. Games, well. second edition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks for coming uh, on the show again. It's good to see you. Yeah. I, I, I always appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to directly address things that are, that are design quagmires we all share. Oh, so we're talking about quagmire today? <laughs> yeah, just just sinking into the sand, the the endless swamp of oblivion. I try you, I try you. Oh, jeez! Oh, no. oh, no. oh <laughs> you just killed my day. Oh gosh. Oh, Craig, we need to we need to get out of this. So our text, right. our text. <laughs> What's <Sorry>. our <laughs> What's our topic for today? Because it's not depressing childhood memories. If you know, you know. Um, yeah, we're going to talk today about teaching a new system to the players. Um, sometimes you've got, um, as a GM, you've got players who are joining a group who have never played games before at all or who have never played that particular system. You might be starting up GMing for your first time with uh, yourself or, or for this particular group or for these players, it might be all brand new, might be new, you know, new system, new, new to gaming entirely. Um, and so just some ideas about things that you might keep in mind to help to get uh, new players up to speed with a system that they are not familiar with. Oh yeah. And this happens all the time at conventions, for example, like that's where yep. I teach mostly when I teach games. So yeah, I'm interested in hearing all the tips and tricks. <laughs> I think conventions are the yeah the baseline for a lot of us because we pitch a game that we're enthusiastic about it, but then you know five or six players will show up and uh, maybe two of them have played that game, maybe zero, and you ha then have to immediately educate them into how to play. But all also that you have to convince them this game will be fun. You'll have a fun <laughs> experience within two or four hours. Um, and, uh, so, so you're, you're selling them on a number of things, not just teaching them the rules. I guess that's my, my opening gambit is, is, is you, you also have to kind of introduce them to the feel of the game because otherwise the rules don't make any sense. If I say roll 2d6 and look at your result, well, that, that doesn't really sell me on the game, but I say you get to, you know, you get to frighten this person based on what these 2d6 you know you get to you get get to frighten an angry scarecrow and now i know that that we're we're in kind of a rural goth setting and uh, all these other details so i think uh, part of it part of it is is having to be a salesperson for the game as well as uh, politely escorting people along i don't know i how how many how many minutes should we spend at the beginning of a session to go over the rules and how, how, how much do we then just jump right in and teach it as we go along? I that's the thing. Like it yeah. really doesn't matter how long you spend talking about the rules at the beginning of the game. You are going to have to reteach them a lot 
when you actually start playing. I think that's true whether you're at a convention or whether you're sitting down at a table at your house with a bunch of your friends who've been playing games for a long time. You're going to have to learn some things as you go. And unless you have like a, a mind like a steel trap, you yourself are going to forget some of the rules in the game and have to look things up and, and skip over things or make mistakes. Um, that's why when I design specifically for a convention game, when I, when I design my, my adventure for, for my players to go through, I try to set them up right away in the first scene with something that introduces them to the core mechanic of the game um, and walk them through, essentially, a very low stake, something that's not going to kill them. It's not going to, like, take a super long amount of time. It's just like a little, it's a little amuse-bouche of the rules um, where where they get to try it out right then and there. And that also increases their confidence because when you're teaching something, like that's that's a it's kind of a scary experience. You're learning something new, you're afraid to make mistakes. Um if you get through the first challenge unscathed um with a sense of confidence, you are going to carry that feeling with you for the rest of the game. So I like to um I like to give them a, we, I tell them in general, here's what the game's about. Here's what you're going to need. Here's kind of what you're going to be doing when I ask you uh, to roll, but let's get into it. Let's, let's do a scene and let's see how it goes. Um, And then after that, I check in with him. Like, how did that go? Like, does that make sense? What do you need to know? What were you confused about? Just like a very quick little check-in after they try it out. Yeah, I've run into that uh, kind of, throw them right into something simple right up front, both in convention games where you want to just kind of get the baseline of the core system um, up in front of them. Um, and and example, as, as uh, Evan said, to exe- also exemplify kind of what the game is about in that moment. Um, and then do I've done that with uh, in camp, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, in campaign form as well, where I've had like the first session sticks with just very simple stuff. And then the second session does more complex stuff. And as you go along, and I might refer to some of these examples, um, because there was one in particular that I wrote actually an article online about like years ago for a web, uh, for a website. Um, and like, for example, what I did was like the, for Deadlands, I was running a campaign for the first time, new players. Um, I had them, uh, you know, m- uh, introduce each other around the campfire um, on the prairie, very Deadlands Western, right? They all told stories, had them go to bed. They woke up having been kidnapped by um, some walking dead zombies. They're seated on their horses underneath trees with nooses around their neck. Okay, now skill check to get your hands free or to get out of the noose or to get the horse to rear up so you can, you know, get your neck out of, you know, get your head out of the noose because the noose wasn't tied very tight. And one of the characters was described as having had their hands bound in front of them so they could actually get to a gun easily. Um, So I gave them different scenarios that their characters could do different things and just like, okay, now we do skill checks and this is how you get out of this predicament. Um, And the walking dead weren't terribly good at what they were trying to do. Hence, you know, the, poor preparation for the hanging. Um, but, you know, it gave them the baseline of it. And then, you know, future game sessions, or you could do this as future encounters in one game, which was like, okay, now it's going to be a shootout against people that are a little smarter and they're going to think about strategy. And then you have another one where, like I introduced mad scientists in a, in a contraption for, you know, Deadlands has all these wacky inventions and mad scientists. And 
I introduced a monster that was like there was a gremlin in the automaton. So they had to get the gremlin out and then deal with a monster. And then uh, eventually, like, you know, the kind of the culmination of teaching the rules was and this might be like the last adventure, you know, the last encounter in a longer you know, a single session, which was they had these like spider monsters that were attacking the town and they would get up on top of buildings. And so it got three dimensional and characters were climbing to get to things and shooting it from range and using cover. And, you know, they got more, you know, deeper and deeper into the rules. So uh, I've, I've found that, yeah, the slow build um, tends to work very well. I think responding to your comments, I guess I, I divide up my, uh, my teaching of, of systems into three different categories. One is the intimidating big legacy book. So, you know, uh, if, if you're just going to sit, I, I, I won't be running a D&D 5e uh, like um, session anytime soon, but maybe I'd be running Cyberpunk Red. Actually, I do run Cyberpunk Red. And when that happens, I'll say, here is your character. You know, this is a big established legacy system. So like if you have questions about what's going on in your seat, I'm happy to answer them, but I'm not going to bombard you with what's there. So we're just going to present the situation, kind of, you know, who you are and then dive in. And then when we if they have questions like what's a neural link or something, I'm like, here's that. But otherwise, um, those big legacy systems, there's too much to introduce. And I assume that people who are sitting down have the greatest likelihood of actually knowing what's going on already. So I don't benefit from spending too much time with that. Then I have what I call the indie book. So it's not in a cards or board game format. And the indie book, that means I really am going to have to introduce that a lot more thoroughly because there will be a lot more buy-in. This is powered by the apocalypse and others where I really have to say, we're going to sit here for 45 minutes and talk system, but that's because I want you to be co-collaborators on this and not just um, you know players who are responding to my, my GM overtures. And usually that'll benefit, but it's also to sort of... Uh, orient a group who are often unclear as to the basic things of what they can say or do in those situations so indie games actually take a lot of hand-holding but I find it very rewarding on the other end as long as we have the right group and then what I will usually just grab these days to go to conventions is uh, cards so uh, this would be uh, for the queen uh, fedora noir um, the price of coal. These are just, you know, role-playing card games and all of the rules are on the cards and you, you know, often pass the cards around and talk about them and, and that's that. And that kind of is the sweet spot between me not having to do much as well as to still build a collaborative environment with the players. So I guess, um, you know, for for me, uh, if there's, there's, a, there's a big legacy attached to a game, that, that the players don't have a lot of control over, then to some degree, I'm already introducing that when I'm you know, bringing them in and, and teaching them the system. But if there, if it's something is very co-creative, then I think walking them through the rules is good. And that's when I, I, I air towards a storytelling card game where the rules are presented in these really nice bite-side chunks and I don't have to uh, make my cheat sheet, which again, my partner Kat and I were talking about yesterday. We, we used to read a, read a new game and then we would come up with our own one-page system to our, you know, system explanation to ourselves of what is going on so that then when we were panicking in a convention situation we we had we knew the rules but but again like uh it, it, it was it was not really notes for the group it was notes so we could keep on track what is what is actually being run there and you know with a large legacy game i just forget half the rules anyway because it doesn't matter i think it's, it's interesting that you said that uh 
you you find that these indie games are they require more hand holding. I found the opposite to be true in my experience because a lot of a lot of non legacy type games like they're they're in settings that are more familiar to players. Um, I think that you kind of require a little bit more hand holding if you're playing in a setting that you don't experience a lot in your media, like that's your day to day media, because you know what the tropes are if you if you're doing. For example, like something like a horror movie kind of game. Like, you know what the tropes are in a horror movie. Otherwise, you wouldn't be coming here to sit down to play my horror game that I advertise in the convention game book. But also on what you said about the like the cheat sheets, I think that's like a huge tool. Having a cheat sheet, like having having a list of rules, like here's a here's a go to. So no one has to be flipping through the book, especially at a convention where you're probably the only one with a book that that is huge. That's absolutely huge. And that's how I handle when I teach, like in my actual job, I I make sure my students have notes. I, I scaffold them up to where they're supposed to be. I'm not going to start asking them to write a whole essay in French as soon as we sit down for our first session we're gonna do something really simple and i mean because we're talking about teaching like using some of those teaching strategies is like it's huge for me i i feel like i'm really capable of doing that um a cheat sheet though man that's golden i use that when i do baker uh baker street the sherlock holmes mystery solving game i need that cheat sheet so i remember exactly okay we roll this this is how much we get like here's what we're doing and here everyone can see it here's what we're doing uh, it's that's absolutely huge. Just a, just a quick side note. I think it's interesting to note that Evan and Jess described somewhat conflicting approaches and experiences with, um, for example, indie games. And I think that what that boils down to, and it's worth keeping in mind, is that every GM, yourself included, dear listener, are going to have a different experience and a different approach. And so everything we're offering here is just ideas. There's plenty of different ways to do it. You might find a way, uh, you know, one thing that that, that's in this episode that that's the thing you latch onto and that's like that totally works for you you might find all sorts of ideas in here and just synthesize those into a thing that works for you um so uh and and, and it'll be trial and error too if you're a you know a beginning gm or 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 getting into um new systems for the first time you know you have you played the same thing for a long time or whatever um you might find yourself kind of uh having to test and and refine how you uh, how you approach teaching a new system. Yeah, the first time you teach a system, you're going to suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> or prepare, prepare to suck, I will say that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually wanted to move into discussion of a specific system, which is Gumshoe, uh, which which then governs a lot of the Pelgrane plot products. That's, um, you know, Ashen Stars, uh, um, uh, Swords of the Serpentine, and uh, uh knights black agents etc and what's interesting about gumshoe is that i have to if i'm making a, a, a gumshoe um session then i need two sheet cheat sheets i need a pu open public one that's not only for me but i can also hand to people in terms of the point system with gumshoe you pay to discover things you basically have resources that you're you that you are then um uh, paying to uh, solve the the mystery and that that means the mystery itself is it needs to be on the other sheet <laughs> because because then then you kind of have to to have the different clues unlocked and of course um you know that that could be a behind the game master screen experience but i also you know in 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 preparing those cheat sheets i i i actually am able to uh prepare also the entire system it's one of those things where if i if i really want to 
um, have a well-prepared mystery session um, for the players, you know, with 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 a first, second, and third act, and and uh, red herrings, the whole nine yards. I plan it out with 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 gumshoe because I know that when I'm orienting the players at the beginning. I have this one cheat sheet that explains the whole resource system of how they're going to go into the the system, and then I'm, I already realize that I'm subconsciously already cueing them into how they're going to proceed through the the hidden sheet. Um, and I don't know, I, I I don't know how to explain this other other than if you already kind of know the roller coaster that they're going to go through, then you can already uh, tell them the right instructions of you know to strap your seatbelts in and and go and and keep your your limbs inside the vehicle giving giving a lot of nice warnings to people too like hey like you have this power that you haven't used and it's really effective in this time like giving those helpful hints like you're clippy when you're teaching a game (laughs) you need to be clippy it it sounds like you're trying to shoot this monster have you tried this like you really do have to you have to be more on when you're playing with players that you're teaching the game to in the first place. You really have to be, you have to pay attention to their, their facial expressions. If you're sitting there and you can see their face, um, like look for confused facial expressions, look, listen for um, frustrated sounds, listen for frustrated um, long pauses. Uh, if players keep doing the same thing over and over again, like cluing yourselves in, uh, cluing yourself into um, what's going on in their brain as they're trying to figure the rules out and then giving them some advice. You can definitely give way more advice when you're teaching it. Like, don't feel like you're railroading them or telling them what to do. You're still giving them a lot of agency, of course. But um, I know when I learn a new game, I, like a board game, card game, role-playing game doesn't matter if there's a really experienced player at the table and they say like, hey, you might want to try this out. Like I want that so I so I can actually have fun playing the game. Um, yeah, don't be afraid to do that at all. And that, that, that plays to uh, things that you've both said actually plays to don't be afraid to remind people of of things that they're that they need to know for the game. Um, just like my own uh, experiences like when I run good strong hands or in either of the other two games that are kind of built using the same system there's every time you make a tra- a player makes a trait check they will mark a point on one of three tracks then those three tracks are are currencies that you know, like you fill up the track and something happens or you can spend points from the track or whatever and it's important that they keep rolling that so as a GM when they say I get you know this result on my dice roll I tell them what all happens and remind them to mark that track I went so far with the character sheet is to write on the tra- like right next to the tracks it tells you when you mark something on this track um to be kind of repetitious about it because if the players are used to games that don't have to do that sort of thing, and this can go for anything, if there if there's something in the game that you're teaching that the players just don't have experience with because there's a, a a mechanic or a subsystem or something that's very different but very important, you know, reminding them of it is, and certainly including it on the cheat sheet is useful. But then re- even reminding them in play of it, making sure that they like they they keep that in mind when they're doing stuff. Otherwise they might get halfway through the game and realize, well, I don't have any spirit points. Well, have you been marking it every time you got a success? 
Yeah, the, the, your your role in the economy is absolutely critical because you know you're the you're the Fed as the game master. You really control <laughs> you control. I, I I'm not just randomly making that argument right now uh, on this particular date. Um, it, it, you really you really can can you you the entire economy does not work unless you make specific decisions and 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 activate your players as both producers and consumers in that economy. So if there's a fate points economy, right, where they get fate points for dramatic actions and then spend them to do other dramatic actions, then that needs to be not only apparent and explained, but also you need to, to hand out the carrot very early on so that they're, they're reminded, oh, yeah, I can spend fate points to do uh, this thing. And maybe I should, I'll just, I'll, maybe the game, the game master has advised me to do it. Maybe I'll just do it. You know, I, I mean, uh, you're, you're really in control in, in those kinds of, uh, situations. And if you're doing a GMless sort of situation, then, uh, you're still, you're still modeling things as a facilitator. And, and, and in that case, then you are, you're directly modeling here is, um, the behavior I would like for you, the rest of you players also to exhibit, you know, I'm open to your ideas. I want to uh, help. I have strong boundaries around specific things, right? And and really almost um, articulating those in, I'm, I don't want to say in a school teacher level, but but I think it, it's, really, it's really effective because then there's no mystery about what your motives are, what what's going on at the table, and what behavior you are modeling. I think, especially in a loud convention room, as we move back to those, that can be very, very effective. I'm so glad that you brought up modeling, which is like a huge term in education. And like this gradual release that you can do with your players, this is especially great in a jamless type of game, which is really hard to teach because you're playing the game at the same time as everybody else in the same kind of capacity as everyone else. But you are also the expert here. So you can, like like Evan said, model, do it, do it first, show them, do it together, and then have them do it on their own, which is I do, we do, you do. Like all those strategies, <laughs> which does sound very school teachery, but I mean, as long as you are, you don't want to be the annoying tutorial. You don't want to give help where it's not needed, but that also means you have to trust the other players to voice their needs to you. Like you can't just like they have to also tell you like you're doing too much. Let me let me figure it out. And if they don't, I mean, help them <laughs> help them as much as you can. You are also not cooler than your other players, and you you are not cooler than your system. I think those are also two points of <laughs> advice, right? Where, where again, I in academic settings, I sometimes run into a situation where a colleague will be like, "Well, my engagement with this topic is ambiguous," and they'll 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 make this kind of non-statement where they don't know where they are on the topic and what what they don't realize they're doing with that is they're also incentivizing the rest of the room to also make non-statements where they don't know. And, and and that is one of the worst <laughs> sort of meetings possible where everyone kind of doesn't know and it's like too cool to be discussing it. That is the opposite. You want to really all be dorks together and say, I'm a dork. I'm modeling my dorkiness. Can you be a dork with me? That's really important. And and uh, embracing that actually will produce better play, um, unfortunately for your coolness factor, but really fortunately for your trust and your um, give and take with your fellow players. You know, give up being cool if you play TTRPGs. Come on, you got to be a dork. You have to. It's we all we all want to, and we all like it. <laughs> uh, um, I am a believer in, and it's partly my nature because I 
you know, like it's how I function a lot of times and I have to be careful about it. But I'm also a believer of like, it's okay to you know, over explain or push or remind a little more. I would rather have the player walk away from the table saying, I had a really good time, though the GM was a little pushy and over explaining than having them walk away and say, I didn't know what the hell was going on. That was a waste of my time. As we do oftentimes, I'll throw this out there. Um, if it, it can be at a convention, it can be at your home game or, you know, game at the local game store or whatever. If one of the players knows the system already or wants to become conversant with it very quickly, um, you can, as always, we've talked about this before, you know, rope that player into help. They can be answering questions while you're handling one thing. They can be answering a question for somebody whose turn is coming up and they're not sure and make it clear to everybody else at the table that like, you know, so-and-so really knows the system inside and out. I trust them to answer questions that won't lead you astray. Um, and that way I can be having a role-playing session with Jess while Evan is talking to the, the local rules uh, aficionado and clarifying what exactly that spell does and how they should interpret the verbiage of the, of the spell. I think that works really well for these Discord and Zoom uh, remote campaigns too. And this is from a very practical point of view. I often have the rules on a PDF somewhere and then I've got my screen that's taken up all my screen and I can't go over to the PDF that easily. So I want someone else to have the PDF of the rules like open on their laptop and then they can do the searching for the rule when I need to make a rules call. And, and what that also does is say, I'm not the only authority here over the rules everybody is so if you if you look it up and make help me make the ruling then I, it saves me some action and also builds trust right i'm i'm not you know the sole arbiter but uh, realistically it's because i just got this small laptop and i i can't always get i can't always juggle all the different things we got a character keeper open we got rule 20 open uh you know we don't always have the system integrated into all those those apps and so then someone will need to to look it up and i if i'm game mastering like an hour or two hour session on discord as i frequently am i don't want to look it up i want a player to look it up and uh, and 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 uh even give me their interpretation so it saves me some decision making too and that's also why it's really important to know the background of your players. And you can ask really quickly, like, have you ever played this game before? What's your experience with role-playing games? And you can kind of know if they're complete, you know, completely green or if they have a little bit of experience. And then also you can use that to tailor the way that you are teaching. Let's say you are playing The Price of Coal and the only TTRPGs they've ever played in their life has been like Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder and Shadowrun. <laughs> you you might use that to your advantage to say like, okay, here's how things are way different, extremely different, and really focus on those differences. But they already know, you know, what are we doing together at the table when we're role playing? They will already know those things. And then use that to your advantage too, uh, for sure. Or, you know, if they're completely new, you can kind of use that too like oh here's what role playing is skip skip ahead if you already understand i've never i've never run into a situation like at a convention where i've been teaching a role playing game for the first time like here's how we role play ever um but i'm sure that there are people who have that experience i've done it I me too, Craig. Me too. I, 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 I'm often in um, arts or education spaces. Um, and then the, and then sometimes at conventions too, um, there'll be a 14 year old who plunked themselves down. And I'm like, let's do this because I was I was once that 
you know, that 14 year old who, who uh, I mean, of course, I, I played role played at home, but I had never really been in the convention experience. And it was really helpful to have like older adults stand and just walk me through how I should behave in the setting. And, 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 and of course, not in a way that was that was condescending, but just say, oh, we're at a convention game. So there's going to be six characters that are going to be handed out and uh, you'll have to pick one. And, you know, all these like little social conventions that mm-hmm. would otherwise be confusing. Um, you know, people walking through things very openly was very comforting to me um, and made me feel welcome. And then, you know, of course, like 25 years later, I'm still running at conventions, right? Because I felt very welcome in the mid 90s at the ones where I sat down and didn't know the system, didn't know the other people, uh, was very young, obviously. And no one made you feel stupid for not knowing something or for doing something wrong. No one punished you like, aha, you made this silly mistake and now your character's dead. Haha. No, <laughs> no one probably ever did that to you. <laughs> At the AD&D tables, they did. But that, okay. that's why that's why that, that's why I have a traumatic complex with 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 Dungeons and Dragons and AD&D. I mean, it's not an accident that that I have I, I have this love hate relationship. And it's because of these different judgment cultures, because, again, people who are running more independent stuff, they already are used to no one knowing what the hell they're running so they they usually are more patient with players learning it whereas if i sit down at a convention dungeons and dragons table and again this is no offense to dungeons and dragons players it's just that there's a lot of you so you can generally know people know what a two hit roll is um we we had a we had a table where we had a a caller culture i don't know if you know what callers are but that is a person who gathers up all of the turns um so everybody says oh i hit or i you know um i dodge or or you call out all of your actions and the caller collects them and then presents them to the gm like a lawyer and then and then all of the roles then uh spy, spiral outward from there and it, it saves time but it's really alienating and and apparently it was from the, the like the 1970s dungeons and dragons culture so so again I, there's the quote unquote system, but then there's the meta system of how to actually socially interact. Yeah. And and when I, when I when I slammed into that, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I I've written articles too related on on this material because it was so jarring to 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 go from like a, a table where I say, oh, I'm playing my my elf ranger uh, and he's mine, and I get to say what he does and and say what he thinks, etc. To um, you are a unit in a military operation we have a caller an inventory person and a map maker it doesn't really matter what else you you think or feel and uh again all that stuff needs to be modeled and explained and not that's just assumed. amazing yeah. that is so wild like i have had some similar experiences like if i like the first time i ever went to friday night magic and like there's no one there to walk you through it and there is definitely a system in place and you're coming into this. It's like going into a foreign country where you don't speak the language and all the signs look different and the buildings look different and the people are dressed differently. Like it is confusing and scary and, and having a bad experience can turn you off of that forever. And the worst thing that could ever happen when you teach somebody a game is that you turn them off of it forever. That's <laughs> the worst case scenario. Um, the best case scenario, they become like Evan and are still running games at conventions for 25 years. <laughs> I had my experience of running things for people who had never played games before. And maybe this this is a more likely um, place that that might happen, where when I was first starting to design and, and get games out there, just to put it in front of people's eyes, I was taking the game to any convention that had even the smallest RPG 
you know chunk to it where i was going to a comic local little comic convention but it had a game room so you literally had comic fans that came rolling in and were like oh what's going on here and you had to explain what a role-playing game was and even in you know internet culture today you know, or the today of, you know, that is replete with internet culture, you know, not everybody necessarily knows like, oh, you're going to sit down, you're going to play a character and you're going to all, we're going to, you know, like the, the, for this game, you all function as a team and you're all out to achieve a particular goal and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, just keep that in mind. You know, if you go, if you're at a game convention, probably everybody sits down and already kind of knows what a TTRPG is. But if you're at like something a little different, if you're at like, um, um, a geek convention, you know, a fandom convention, and there happens to be some gaming going on. Yeah, you might run into that. Or I've run into it too, where we there were there was a local meetup thing happening at a tavern in this in this side room at the tavern, and just like the regular patrons would wonder what the hell is going on in there, and they would walk <laughs> in, and a couple of them would sit down and play, having no clue, and sometimes being a little tipsy and not having any <laughs> understanding of what an RPG was. You kind of had to walk the slight, the mildly tipsy person through what the game was, and it was uh, it was that was an experience. I, I I guess what 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 I would summarize uh, a great chunk of our conversation is you know kindness, patience, openness, and modeling are going to do a lot more for you, and also being really honest to yourself about how much you understand about the system you're about ready to run, which is either the cheat sheet or or just your own self understanding. But but um, you know if if your own knowledge is clear and your own comportment uh, to the group is clear then that is going to be a lot more important than how many rules you know and how much you use those rules to patrol your players and in fact it should be the opposite the rules should help enhance the the experience but the players are are the most important part and not the rules in the system i think this is a great time to transition into our <laughs> next segment actually we're we're talking about um common the, the strengths and weaknesses of some common systems. So our specific types of systems. Uh, this is a little different than a lot of the topics we've done for our game creation segment of the show. So, uh, and I feel like, like I have played a lot of games, but I am terrible at becoming an expert in something. I have to like really be interested in something to become an expert in it. Uh, and I, I, you, both of you have been, in games much and playing games much longer than I have. Um, my percentage might be high, but I'm also only 31. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, what, what do we want to jump into? Like, how do you want to kick off this part of the conversation? Well, as a caveat, we won't necessarily get through every system that you want to hear about. We, um, we may not list all of the strengths and weaknesses of a particular system. We may have slightly differing opinions, um, on what the strengths and weaknesses are based on our own experience with the game. We may have played, you know, one of us may have played a game system that was like, oh, this game did this thing really well. And the other person said, well, I played that a bunch and it never did that really well. And that might've <laughs> been like, so it's, it's all kind of our experience. And, but it's, it's just, this is more, I thought at, when I put this down as a possible topic and then Evan chose it, I thought it would be an interesting discussion to just as, uh, as game designers to think about, when you design your own system to kind of think about what strengths and weaknesses it might have. And it's okay for a game to have weaknesses. Um, and if you're looking to design a game in uh, using a particular system, you don't want to design your own system. You want to find the right system that is, that has an open license or is, or is usable um, by others to, to, you know, put your game in just as 
remarked on this podcast on a number of occasions, and I, re- I I agree with it a lot of the time too, which is like, like you know, somebody says, I want to design a game and I'm going to make a D20. Well, are you sure D20 is the right system for that game? Um, so this is a chance for us to kind of just talk about some of the the better known systems and and what they kind of do well and what they're maybe not so good at. I got one on my... your mind, Evan? Yeah, oh, I've sorry. Got, I've got, I've got, I've got, no, I've got a lot. <laughs> I got a lot on my mind. One one is that since I'm a professor of games, this is when I say uh, game literacy is really important, meaning playing a variety of different games and letting the mechanics uh, hit your mind and body, right? Where you, you're suddenly in the player position and you have to make a decision from the player's point of view in a particular system, not just as a game master, but also as a player. And because then, then you begin to understand what that system is asking of people, uh, right? All RPGs are are means of regulating conversation and authority over that conversation. So you really do want to uh, have that feeling of of being controlled a certain way, because then, and I'll say this really bluntly, you will design games more or less based off those systems that you've already experienced. The more systems you experience, the more tools in your toolbox, and you're not likely to design based off of a system you haven't experienced. You're not you're very unlikely to read a game and say, I will, I will hack this game without having played it <laughs> and, 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 and do something. So this, this discussion is directly design related, I feel. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, it's just different than what we often do. Yeah. <laughs> What system do we want to start with? Well, why don't we get it out of the way? D20. D20. Um, lots and lots of games use the D20 system, D&D, Pathfinder, all sorts of independently created games. Um, um, games that have taken the D20 system and morphed it significantly, but still has you know some of the, the core components of it there. I think D20 does a, a good job of allowing you to play characters that start as competent heroes and become near gods. It's, it's and now, and, and it's interesting because we're going to talk about the system and like the, the rolling of the D20 and adding a bonus, nothing about that has anything to do with becoming near godlike because if your target numbers are going up, the D20 doesn't make a difference. You're just having higher bonuses and higher target numbers. Um, the D20 just allows you to have a very swingy die, which actually is, you know, part of the allure of D20 or of D20 system is you can do really, really well, really, really well, and you do really, really poorly. But for example, in D20 system, the sheer fact that there's 10 levels of spells, you start with cantrips and you go up to level nine spells where you start by being able to telekinetically pick up a pencil and you end by raining meteors from the sky. Um, that tells you what the system does well. Um, if you make a version of a game that uses the D20 system and you cap your spell casting and your level progression, that you know takes means that your characters don't progress to godlike capability because they don't get to those higher level. Maybe they only get to third or fourth level spells, which are potent, but not godlike capability. So you know, what does it not do terribly well? They they keep trying to tack things in that allow you to do kind of player uh, agency things like inspiration points, but then they never really talk about it much. I personally feel the inspiration system in 5th edition D&D is one of the biggest missteps in the system, um, in the game. They could have made five, they could have had inspiration point uses that were class specific and that were really cool and, cla- and built class capability and features. Um, and they just made it like, oh, you can gain advantage on a roll. And w- with characters that don't, you know, with spellcasters, for example, that don't make attack rolls very often, and they mostly do area effect spells um, and things that require saving throws, like 
you know, okay, well, I just saved my inspiration for whenever I do a spellcraft check, I guess, because you don't have as many uses for it. Anyway, that's my thoughts on D20. <laughs> I, I'm going to do GURPS. Uh, <laughs> GURPS is a very popular, it's called Generic Universal Role-Playing System, uh, you know, from the 80s, uh, when, when generic and universal role-playing systems were very popular. And indeed, in the 90s, I built a lot of things from the GURPS playbook. Uh, that was back when GURPS was very well supplemented and had lots of different GURPS uh, books for different purposes. Um, oh, quick, quick aside. If you're, if you're designing something um, with, with like a genre kind of thing going on, they're out of print, but you can find PDFs or old copies in stores. Like I have gone and specifically bought GURPS books for different genres just to be able to be, read, to use like as research for certain things like groups cliffhangers and you know some of that stuff like <laughs> keep that in mind <laughs> I, I think i think craig is actually hits the nail on the head the content is good but let's get to the system and the mechanics that's where we run into some issues uh the strength of gurps is that it's very accommodating it it, it makes everything generic uh pretty much your character is divided into some universal sets of stats that can work in sci-fi settings supernatural settings uh fantasy settings and also uh, advantages and disadvantages, which again are customizable, but more or less you spend uh, points to get good things and you have, you, you get more points if you take bad stuff on you. Realistically though, you run into issues as a player um, in which when you're building a character, you can kind of build half a character well. <laughs> and then this half character has a bunch of stuff because you can't, you can't allocate a lot of points without having a lot of disadvantages. Um, and what this does is, is your disadvantages are often, often ableist, uh, you know, uh, here is your perfectly fine character, but then you will gain points by hacking off one of their limbs. And, uh, that is of course, yeah, it may be a conversation for a different time, but what it, what it does do is, um, it kind of uh, forces you to, to, to make a lot of compromised decisions with your character in the beginning. You're not starting off in as this kind of naive first level characters in D20, but you're starting off as like this halfway competent, but halfway also completely hobbled character that then as you progress through the system, uh, you have to make a choice whether or not you're going to spend your experience and advancement points on um, actually improving your character, making your half character a whole character, or are you going to buy off the disadvantages, especially like, let's say you beat the villain and the villain is on your character sheet, right? Big, bad villain. And you get negative, it says negative 10. So you can buy that off with an, a number of, of experience points. Uh, well, that's great, except, it, you know, so you can wrap up that plot point, but but if you wrap up that plot point, you are then also destroying your character's opportunity to advance. Isn't that weird? Right. Uh, but but so so there are, there are constantly these kinds of weird uh, system decisions where you think my character is neither competent nor will ever sort of overcome any of their issues. Um, <laughs> and and uh, that's that's that. So I, I guess that that's the strengths and weaknesses of, of GURPS from a player point of view. From a game master point of view, it's great because you can build almost everything um, through GURPS. But but then when when players encounter it, they are often making uh, pretty fraught decisions about their characters. I'll talk about one of my favorites. Um, I, I mean, I love that the two of you picked like the two, what I consider the two of the crunchiest <laughs> systems. Yeah. Out there. I love Powered by the Apocalypse, personally. I really like that it is kind of easy to pick up. It's not quite like 
like um, what Evan had mentioned earlier, where you have like a card and it tells you all the rules on it, but right on your character's playbook has all of your specialized moves that you would use and, and have available to you, as well as a pool of some basic moves that everyone has available to them at all times. So powered by the apocalypse, you use, you roll two uh, six-sided dice and you add an attribute typically Typically, that's how it works. Some some Powered by the Apocalypse games do things slightly differently. Um, and then on your playbook, you'll have different moves that'll say like, when this is when this is happening or when you're trying to do this, you can do this. Uh, I, th- there's a lot of really good if-then statements that really give you clear guidelines. I can do this when this happens. And I really like that about being a player in a Powered by the Apocalypse system. It also, like, having the playbooks makes you feel like you have your own things going on. A lot of their skills are not necessarily overlapping. You can feel like you have a pretty um, a pretty different experience to everyone else at the table. Like, your character matters in that case. I really like that. I also really like that it has, um, like, a mixed success system. That failure feels like it's doing something because you get points of experience. When you fail a role, when you get a mixed success, something bad can happen. There's going to be a complication, but it's not just necessarily succeed or fail. And um, some, some Powered by the Apocalypse systems even have, like, greater successes as you continue to advance um, which can really make it feel like you're actually doing something when you roll when you succeed or fail it actually feels like you're doing something as a gm it's also really nice because it lets you really share some of the world building and the storytelling with the players because as the gm you are you're setting up situations for the players to react to and there you, you don't have to roll for you don't have to roll for anything. You don't you don't have to roll for anything ever. And that means you don't have to worry about controlling hordes and hordes of minions like you might have to for a D20 system, for example. Um, but as far as disadvantages when it comes to uh, a Powered by the Apocalypse system is that oh, 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 another advantage is that your progression is not so linear. You can choose your moves in your playbook as you advance. You don't necessarily need to pick one thing after the other after the other. Um, you can pick different moves. But the downside to that is it can be very difficult as a designer to balance a powered by the apocalypse system so your players are not doing things that might be limited to uh, someone else's playbook. So you're not letting them do a move that someone else is able to do only from their playbook. You have to really think um, and design each of these moves kind of individually and think about how they might fit together and think about how all the different puzzle pieces would fit together and also as a player it can be a little weird uh not having necessarily a clear idea of like in a fight like for example it's it's harder to know when you are supposed to do something when you are trying when when you are meant to react or when someone else is meant to react um it, it can fi- kind of feel a little more nebulous. I think that's a really big disadvantage. Like it's it's something that people who come from a D20 system and then into a Powered by the Apocalypse system have a have a struggle with because a D20 system has a very clear progression. You go, I go, you go, I go. It's not like that in a Powered by the Apocalypse system. So that can be confusing and might take a little bit more training um, and, and more comfort being, more comfort with, <laughs> more comfort than the d20 system needs when it comes to success and failure 
Uh, it's also a little bit more work for the GM because you're constantly setting up moves. Uh, <laughs> you're setting things up and hoping that your players will react to them and kind of know what you're getting at. Um, and also your players might get burnt out and having to make a lot of decisions. Uh, but I really like designing for Powered by the Apocalypse. I, I think they're really good for like super highly themed type games where you're you're really playing on a genre rather than you're playing as like it's more genre focused I feel like than character focused if that makes sense um I feel like and it's one of the things that frightens me a little bit about designing PBTA games is that that it would live and die a lot by playtesting because you can't really do dice analysis and, and statistics and stuff because the 2d6 plus a number doesn't really vary a great deal um so it's really knowing like how these moves compare to those moves and like you got you know, like slight tweaks to like this move a little more get a little more out of this move a little less out of this move so that it all kind of balances yeah. out and you were that, that, that's speaking to what you were talking about but i think play testing would be like an analysis you really do and some moves don't even require a role like some moves you just do like yeah. someone lies to you you can do this like when does that happen i i have a move in moonpunk where the old timer can spin a yarn and as long as they can continuously tell the story they are distracting whoever they're talking to so everyone else can do something <laughs> um but that's not a role you can't like you can't mathematically analyze that <laughs> and that can bother some that can bother some people they like to know they want to know what the numbers are going to tell them oh next <laughs> savage worlds again another uh kind of generic system generalized uh system that allows you to do a lot of different genres um i think it's uh it 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 does a fairly good job of allowing you to create like a lot of different types of characters and a lot of different genres. Like, uh, like you, like with GURPS, you can do fantasy, horror, um, superpowers, all that sort of thing. Um, there's sometimes a little more variation with those subsystems um, that, but that, that still fit within the the basic game mechanic and, and kind of thrust of the system. But there's a little more variation where it sounds like I haven't played a lot of GURPS, but GURPS is, you know, like very much like it all it's, it doesn't, it doesn't forgive. You don't go outside of the bounds of how GURPS works too much. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the strengths really of, of Savage Worlds is like kind of in their, their tagline for, you know, fast, fun, and furious. The idea when designing the, the system was to be able to tell a, a, a good story in just two, even three, you know, three hours, um, be able to get through a few combats. That's why you've got, you know, you know, when you're going up, when you're having a fight, there's going to be, uh, wild cards who are the characters that like take a little while to kind of take care of and everybody else is an extra and they go down in one hit so you've got some threats on there but we can get through we can weed through all the minions and all the you know uh the hench people really quickly and get to the the crux of dealing with whoever the big bad is or whatever it uh and in the you know weakness wise it it suffers i don't want to say suffers but it you know it it deals with uh, it deals in the idea that a lot of genericized and generalized system do, which is that it it's not built inherently to have um, highly thematic, very different subsystems that plug into it. Now, you can develop those, and there are people that have created um, supplements that run off of uh, Savage Worlds. Uh, core that do those types of things. But this, you know, the core system that you pick up isn't going to give you something that's too wacky and out there you have to kind of develop that and that would require a fair bit of you know play testing to see how that integrates if you're going to do something terribly different it'd be interesting if you're going to examine savage worlds you know take a look at old deadlands where savage worlds came from and how much more robust complex and kind of like 
uh, exhausting <laughs> the system was because it was there was there were ten traits there you could have um, every type of die a diff, you know different numbers of the dice so it was hard to know like okay is three d eight better than forty six like I don't know which one's actually better um, <laughs> versus the target number system that was used in the game but uh, you know they 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 codified that down in Savage Worlds kind of uses the, the best of things which i think um there there are some systems that are very very complex that could be served well by like somebody taking the system and like stripping out the the clunky bits and and getting it to the core um and savage worlds um does that well with uh with you know with, with what it did with deadlands it's uh it's otherwise you know it it, it plays to a lot of um it, it kind of falls like i said it falls into the what what most generic systems do is it allows you to do a bunch of things, but it doesn't allow you to necessarily inherently get too thematic into those things. You have to kind of create something to get a subsystem, and then that, and then you got then figuring out how how that integrates is a, can be a tough problem design problem. I I agree on all fronts with Savage Worlds. I think the um, uh, this is also doing genre fiction, but but I whenever I, I sit down to play a Savage Worlds game, I get this like cozy, warm feeling like, oh, OK, we're going to I got two guns and I'm ready for action. Let's do this. And, <laughs> and I don't I don't have to think very much, which is really nice about that system. I just do it. I guess uh, the predecessor to, to, to Powered by the Apocalypse or what we call the story games or writer's room style games in the 2000s, like Powered by the Apocalypse is a specific design solution to a problem we had, which is why do you want to play the writer's room of an HBO show when you could just play the characters of an HBO show? It really is the Powered by the Apocalypse ethos is, no, you're a character's an HBO show. You have to make hard decisions, adult decisions, ones focused on scarcity, and the plot will never let up. Whereas in the earlier times, we had, you know, games like, and I got a whole list of them, you know, uh, Emily Care Boss's Misery Chord, Nathan Paletta's Annalise, Jason Morningstar's Fiasco, A Thousand One Nights by, by Meg Baker, Questlandia by Heaven, uh, by Hannah Rowland and Evan Schaefer. These are all games that basically have, they have no game master. You sit around and you're collaboratively telling a story together. And um, and you kind of all have to get on the same page very quickly, not only with the, you know, the genre, the feel of the story, but also with the economy. So like Annalise is very much about uh, putting um, various literary tropes. It's a vampire game. So it's like, what is what are the harbingers of the vampire? And the cool thing about the game is that the vampire is not determined yet. You 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 are interpreting the vampire based off of weird, creepy signs that you're all collectively creating as a group or like little bits of furniture or you know characters that are kind of mysterious and and that of course resembles Dracula, right? It's not Dracula isn't in most of Dracula, if that makes sense. So <laughs> it's it's this shadowy lurking presence that is that is uh, coming in. Fiasco is another example, right? Where you coming get in this... and making your bed for you because he actually has no servants. That's right, because I don't know. <laughs> Dracula is also very gay, and I love it. Um, the... <laughs> so the the uh, as a side note. But 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 have, having these games, right, the strengths of these games are that you can, you know, make your own Coen Brothers movie in Fiasco, make your own, um, you know, kind of 
tale from antiquity in Misery Quarter, A Thousand One Nights, where you really feel like we are just sharing a meal and sharing stories over a fire together. Isn't that great? No one has authority over these these situations. But as we were discussing earlier, then then the 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 uh the disadvantage is you really do need somebody who strongly knows the system <laughs> there yeah. at the table who is facilitating and really and really modeling. Oh, now it's my turn. And um, this player hasn't had much spotlight yet. So even though I could choose anything I want, I'm going to choose this player because they haven't had hardly any spotlight left. I want them to also be included. Right. So um uh, a, a lot of those kind of shared um, collaborative games require a lot of trust and they really only take one player who's not really into it or decides to make kind of an outlandish decision to destroy things. And it really doesn't matter even what 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 kind of uh, safety tools you have, because then like if 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 they're on, if they have a different creative agenda than you do. Or or the rest of the people do, then then they can continue to make decisions that aren't quite working for the group, and that's really where you have to say, okay, this game isn't working. Let's stop playing. <laughs> but uh, but but at, at the same time, um, it, it, you know, when you sit down to play a game of fiasco, you really don't know what direction it's going to go into. And again, the the, the systems these these systems always revolve around binaries, right? So so um, a, a a scene will either go well or poorly in a thousand one nights sorry sorry in fiasco or a thousand one nights like the scene will go well but the sultan wants to cut off your head uh <laughs> or uh you know in questlandia where you know it, this the scene goes goes poorly for you but then it has has some lurking um you know bright star on uh, you know on the horizon for you so you know there's a there's a lot of the the play, power by the apocalypse mixed success thing that that is sort of built into the dna um through through these these binaristic interactions but uh the binaries are partially there to to signal again to the writer's room really strongly here is how this bunch of talking went mechanically <laughs> here here's how we rate that bunch of talking okay good now we can move on to another bunch of talking <laughs> and 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 that's that's it's sort of the 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 contract you make. But again, powered by the apocalypse, then says, well, let's just spend more time in character, please, yeah. and not framing scenes. And yeah, I, I definitely see that as a. It's definitely a dialogue between those two, and kind of related, like on on like that, kind of on almost the opposite side of the spectrum of that would be like a solo or journaling game, where you are the only player you are making all of your character decisions. You ultimately have all complete authority over what's happening in the game. But as the game designer, you have a lot of front loading to do. You're setting up a whole bunch of scenarios. You are, you're setting up a lot of things for this player to interact with and to follow through on. Um, so the, the upside of that is that you have a lot of agency. You have a lot of control as a player to go through things. And But as, as a player then, what that means is it can sometimes feel like there's not a lot of challenge. There's not a lot of stuff for you to do. Sometimes it can feel much more like a creative writing exercise than an actual game. Um, and that can get us into all sorts of topics and conversations about the difference between a game and just play, um, which is a whole, um, just like a can of worms that <laughs> I, I am not prepared to get into. I feel like from a design perspective for both of the things that you have, you've both just been talking about is, at, you know, from the design side, there's, there's a certain amount of like thinking about 
making sure that what I'm presenting is going to get the desired effect and is going to kind of keep people focused on doing that thing and providing enough information to do that. Um, and then on the flip side, trusting that the players are going to take what you've given them and take, you know, take it to the logical conclusion of how the game functions, you know, to avoid, hopefully, you know, you can't, you can't decide how the players are going to play the game, but if you can, if you can speak to it enough in the, in the game text, as you're designing it, um, it'll help it be very, very clear. Like this is kind of where the game goes this is what the game does this is what is expected of the players, how they're supposed to interact with each other, interact with the game, with the world. And then, you know, if somebody's going to throw a monkey wrench in there, they're going to, they're going to throw a monkey wrench in there, but that there's, uh, you know, I, I feel like just, you know, I, I keep returning to how you play test. Cause I think play testing is different for every, you know, different types of games. And I feel like that, a game like that would do well play testing where to, to play it, but also just to get it in the eyes of different people to read a lot of, you know, a, a bunch of different groups. So to see if they're all in, kind of interpreting the, uh, uh, the, what you, what you're presenting the same way and kind of, you know, playing the game in kind of like where you were expecting it to go, you know, with the, you know, of course people will put their own little spins on things here and there and they'll, They'll twist it for what makes what makes it enjoyable for themselves, but um, that's one of the things I run into. This is just a general playtesting note. Like I try to, if I if I'm if something's going to go through a bunch of playtesting, I try to make sure that I bring in some fresh playtesters at some point partway through because the existing playtesters I've seen iterations of the game and they've filled in gaps and they've figured out kind of how the game is you know what it's about and how how it's expected to be played and where they're going with it. So just something to think about for playtesting in general is to, you know, having a fresh set, like, okay, this game's gone through a few iterations. I'm going to bring in a new group to see, like, does it, do, do they understand it? Can I communicate? Is, is this version of the game communicating to somebody who's never read it before? Yeah. And in and, and, and the sort of spectrum of games, you, you have extremely highly structured games and ones that are, uh, I won't say structure less, but, but less structured and and with with a with a highly structured game you are the you you are trying to make everyone's roles in that structure really 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 clear and if you have a less structured game then you have to say well i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of player trust right it, or, or it, you know and, and this is where a lot of osr games go under what we call high trust where um the designer has created some hex maps some tables some really compelling art a compelling like situation um maybe some character sheets and then they stare at you and uh that uh is great actually but it has has the the defaults problem which is that the players will default to whatever play culture they are used to to resolve that situation so if you are not when you're designing when you are you are not when you're making a fairly low trust game or one where where you really say first do this then do this then do this again um you know kind of holding everybody's hand through the design uh process it, it it also at least broadcasts a number of other expectations. If the players are coming in with with very few expectations of what to do, they will default to whatever they're used to, which is usually strong dungeon master who tells us what to do, and you know players who then are assume sort of the submissive stance and and um, are you know going to then scheme their way through the dungeon master situations. And so so I always find when I'm designing, I'm going against 
defaults unless unless I can use them for my advantage. Sometimes I can use them for my advantage, but often the defaults do not uh, help me, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, work work through uh, the the issues that that I'm trying to work through in the system. I think ultimately, like the style of play, like choosing choosing a game system that really corresponds to the style of play you want to accomplish is is important but there is no one right style of play like we like to play different kinds of games at different times with different people that's true for board games and there's no reason it can't also be true for tabletop role-playing games like there there are there are cooperative board games there are competitive board games there are resource management board games and all of the same kind of spectrum happens in the ttrpg space and in larps too i mean we didn't even talk about any major larp systems and uh, <laughs> there are so many out there and, uh, like this conversation could continue forever. And I, and I think, especially for new designers, it can be really, really overwhelming to see like a bunch of acronyms like PBTA, OSR, 5E, like, what does all this mean? And what does it mean <laughs> for me? And, and that can be really overwhelming because you don't also just like if you're a new player coming in to play a TTRPG for the first time, you don't know the social norms, you don't know the expectations, you might feel like you need someone to walk you through them. The same is true for new designers. It doesn't matter how long you've been playing games, you start transitioning to a mode of designing, and it can be really overwhelming and really scary, and you don't want to make a misstep, and you don't want to like, oh, I'm making a PBTA game, like, but I did it wrong. Like you don't want to feel that way ever. Cause if you have a really bad experience the first time you might stop and you might never continue. Really. I guess my message is like, don't worry about it too much, but try to learn some and try it out. You're, you're going to kind of suck the first time or be like Evan said, be prepared to suck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, and, and, and if it goes really well, you, um, you still should then if it goes really well for you, that's great. Hand, Take take that exact text, hand it to somebody else, and then watch it suck. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that that really, you know, oftentimes uh, we 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 have just the greatest of patience and care for our future readers when we're writing because uh, we don't know who they are yet, and um, and they still need to run ostensibly the game that we've written. So uh, you know, it, it, it every just everyone has a, has a lot of patience with each other, <laughs> and, and and part of it, you know, players with the game game facilitators, but also then the, the designers have to um, really say where uh, where are they going to be coming into this? And um, again, there's a cult of hardcore where where they say we we only need a few tables, we otherwise know the ropes, and then there are other which again is fine, and then there's the other uh, people who say. Um, they don't even know what ropes are so let's explain those to them and then and then walk them through how to use them and of course we're going to default to a, a more open stance but we've all also talked about rp it is on rpg r&d about really listening and being open to players in those first vital like 10 minutes of a game getting to know the vibe getting to know their system knowledge getting to know um, you know, how they're going to interact because that's going to then structure your next uh, three and a half hours of play. That's the beauty of play too. And the beauty of a game in particular is that it does require you to interact in a nice way. You have to, you have to have this kind of social element, even if you're playing 
a solo game, you're still having this essentially a conversation with the game designer. You are playing nice. And if you don't play nice, you're going to have a bad time. And playing nice can mean different things. Sometimes sometimes people like to play, they like to play fight. <laughs> but you got to, I, I love it. I, I, I love that aspect of being a game designer and being a game player because it is a great way to to try out and to have fun with people in like a different mode of of socialization any final thoughts before we close out today gosh i love getting meta with you guys it's just wonderful. talk to play <laughs> talk to players and don't be afraid to suck <laughs> evan thanks so much for joining yeah. us yes today. evan thank you thank you thank you I, I i always love being on these uh so so whatever craig emails me i'm like oh yeah absolutely so, <laughs> all right Thanks so I, much. I think maybe next time you come on, we could talk even more about the subject if you would be if you would want to. There's yep. other lots of other game systems we didn't <laughs> discuss at all. Um, I, I'm sure that someone's in there like, why didn't you talk about Blades of the Dark? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say we do we do Blades of the Dark. Uh, uh, definitely do the the Pelgrane. Um, we can really walk through Gumshoe. We can walk through Call of Cthulhu, uh, White Wolf. Um, we've got Babes. we've got we've got yeah, exactly. We've got we've got a catalog of games we can keep going through. <laughs> you know what would be, what would be interesting too is to look at our own games and talk about what what we because I've I've recognized that things that I've designed because I've done my own systems a lot is I know I I know there are weaknesses in there. I know that there are things that this the system that I designed doesn't do well. And hopefully the game isn't supposed to do those things. <laughs> and it's the system is designed not to do that. And hopefully the things that you wanted it to do, it does. Yeah. Fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed. Evan, where can people find you and your work? Well, um, I'm I'm uh I guess transitioning off of Twitter. So you can still find me on Twitter. It's at guy in black hat. Um on Twitter, or you can also find me on Mastodon, um, guy in the black hat at dice.camp. Uh, those are the most reliable places to hear my annoying thoughts. <laughs> and that's what social media is all about. Uh, <laughs> you can still find me on Twitter. I'll probably, I, I, I kind of enjoy the bonfire. My algorithm's like messed up. I don't know what's happening there anymore, but you can find me there at at Jaska or on Tumblr at at Jaska. I think I'm also on Mastodon at Atjaska on, <laughs> on Dice Camp. Um, uh, and on TikTok at Jess is awful. And you can find my games at wannabegames.com or on DriveThru or Itch under wannabegames. Um, I'm at NerdBurgerCraig on Twitter and Mastodon. Uh, the game, uh, the company uh, website is nerdburgergames.com. The uh, games are all available at Drive RPG. And uh, there's still a Kickstarter going right now for Die Laughing 2, which is a supplement, not a second edition. Um, a little supplement of uh, some additional cool stuff to put into your Die Laughing game. It's super cheap. Um, it's on backer kit crowdfunding right now. This is the first time you haven't said Die Laughing 2, Die Laughinger. With <laughs> you, you didn't say that part, and that's the best part. So I need to correct well, you on that. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing it up in how I present it. Sorry, <laughs> didn't, didn't mean to, didn't mean to disappoint Jess. <laughs> uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.